How do the Quran and the Book of Mormon compare to the Christian Bible? They're much more recent than Hindu or Buddhist scriptures, so aren't they more trustworthy? Let's look at the answers in our podcast today. Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran, and welcome to Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. Our topic for today is, How is the Historical Truth of the Christian Bible Unique? Part 2. We're going to compare it with the Muslim and Mormon scriptures. So let's get started. Before we begin, though, this lesson is the conclusion of a four-part foundational series on how truth and history confirm that we can trust the Christian Bible. The four lessons in this series are, number one, that we first looked at what is truth and how historical truth relates to religious truth. Then number two was how do historians determine truth and why geography, archaeology, artifacts, and documents matter. And then number three, how is the historical truth of the Christian Bible unique? Part one, and that's where we looked at the Hindu and Buddhist scriptures. And now this final one, part four, how is the historical truth of the Christian Bible unique as it is when it is compared with what we're going to do today, the Muslim and Mormon scriptures? And I do hope that you can either listen or watch all of the parts for a full understanding of why we can trust the Christian Bible. Also, to review our plan for looking at the various religions and scriptures, here's what we're going to do. Remember, this is not a comprehensive course on world religions, but I trust that each presentation is an accurate and respectful representation of each religion, and this is how we will look at them. First, I'm going to give you a brief overview of each one of them. Then I'll talk about how they define salvation and a life pleasing to God. Then we'll look at their sacred rights at their scriptures and see what is it that supports their beliefs. I will also give you samples. I will read you samples of the different scriptures. Again, this is not comprehensive, but I trust that it is accurate. And fourth, what are their historical anchors in their scriptures that support their claims? And finally, the last thing we'll look at is how does each one of them view Jesus? And we'll look at the historical basis for that view. Now, first of all, we're going to start with the history of Islam and the Quran. Islam was founded much later than Christianity. I know, I don't know about you, but um, when I started studying this, I didn't really realize that. For some reason, I thought all of these religions kind of took place at the same time, but it wasn't. Islam, again, actually was much later than Christianity. Muhammad, the founder of it, was born in 570 AD, and he lived in Arabia, or what is modern-day Saudi, Saudi Arabia. And at that time, and it, it still is in many ways, it's a real crossroads of commerce and religious systems. Many of the people around him were polytheistic in their beliefs, but there were also a lot of influences from the monotheism of the Jews and Christians. When Muhammad was about 40, Muslims believed that the Quran was verbally revealed to him from God through the angel Gabriel over a period of approximately 23 years. And Muslims believe this began in December 609 AD. Now, Muhammad's calling was to tur turn people from their idolatrous ways, they worship many gods, many spirits, etc., to the one God, Allah. 
Muslims consider the Quran, and this is extremely important, remember this, to be the only revealed book that has been protected by God from distortion or corruption. We're going to test that view later. According to the traditional narrative, several companions then of Muhammad served as scribes and were responsible for writing down the revelations. Muhammad himself was illiterate. He could not read or write, and this was taken as evidence that the words of the Quran he spoke came from God. Now, what is the Muslim view of salvation? This is a summary by a gentleman named Don Stewart, that, and this, was, uh, this is summarized on the Blue Letter Bible website. And this is what he says. Salvation, as, uh, as Islam understands it, is based on a person's good works outweighing their bad. Since Muslims do not recognize original sin, they see no need for salvation in the Christian sense. There's nothing to be saved from. Consequently, if there was no original sin, there is no need for a savior. Salvation in Islam is based upon the deeds of a person. The Quran says, They whose balances shall be heavy shall be blessed, but those whose balances shall be light, they shall lose their soul, abiding in hell forever. In Islam, people are saved by the will of Allah through obedience to his law, the Sharia. Consequently, in Islam, a person is to live a good life, pleasing to God in all they do. They are to submit to him and follow his commandments. Religion to the Muslim does not mean salvation from sin. Instead, it means following the right path, which is mapped out by Islamic law. Now I have a brief overview of the content and form of the Quran, their scripture and source for their beliefs. The Quran is a book. It's, it's not really very big. It's comparable in length to the Gospels. It contains 114 chapters. These are called a surah in Arabic, and they're of varying length. And here is how one Muslim describes it. The first revelations from the period of Muhammad's residence in Mecca are short and, and incantatory verses. The later revelations from the period after Muhammad migrated to Medina are longer legalistic texts appropriate to a developing community of believers in need of rules and regulations. The Quran opens with the Fatiha, a beautiful short prayer that serves as an invocation in many situations. In the name of God, the merciful, the compassionate, praise belongs to God, Lord of all being, the all-merciful, the all-compassionate, the master of the day of doom, the only we serve, to the alone we pray for succor. Guide us along the straight path, the path of those whom thou hast blessed, not of those whom thou art wrathful, nor of those who are astray. Now, granted, now I'm talking myself, that was a quote before, granted this part is beautiful. The rest of the Quran, however, <laughs> contains a great variety of material. Some purported history, material on the punishment of infidels, stories of other religious leaders. It's really quite a mixture, and I'll give you a few more examples in a minute. But I would encourage you to look at the Quran. It's available free online, and it's not at all like the Bible, and in my opinion, it is not all beautiful prose. Once I was afraid to read it, I thought, oh, maybe it's, you know, just going to be really wonderful and all that sort of thing, um, as I referred in my earlier lesson, but it was not at all what I expected. Let me give you some additional excerpts from the Quran. O you who believe, 
enter absolutely into the peace of Islam. Do not follow in the foots of Satan. He is an outright enemy to you. Another passage. God's curse be upon the infidels. Evil is that for which they have bartered away their souls. To deny God's own revelation, grudging that he should reveal his bounty to whom he chooses among his servants. They have incurred God's most inexorable wrath. An ignominious punishment awaits the unbelievers. Then another one. Men have authority over women. Because God has made the one superior to the other. And because they spend their wealth to maintain them. Good women are obedient. As for those whom you fear disobedience, admonish them and forsake their beds in and forsake them in beds apart and beat them. It's very, very mixed in content, and there really aren't historical anchors or context for why or when these various statements are made. Now to evaluate the Quran historically, as to historical validity, there's two areas that we need to look at. One, as far as just textual transmission goes, it's relatively good compared to many others. The Quran means, again, to recite, and Muhammad was illiterate, so he recited the words, and his companions who served as scribes either memorized or wrote down the revelations. Shortly after Muhammad's death, various groups wrote various compilations of what they had written down. Now these different versions motivated a Caliph Uthman to gather and destroy some of the uh, different versions and his version is a primary one for the Quran today. There's kind of tenuous historical anchors there. We don't really know exactly why um, he did what he did but that's what happened. Two, as far as historical truth in general, it really isn't very good. A number of other religions, Hindu and Buddhism, for example, make absolutely no pretense of being historically accurate. So we can't critique them for that. They say, we don't know if Buddha was a god. We don't know if, you know exactly who Krishna was. We don't really know this. We don't really know that. We accept it as legend. But the Quran doesn't say that. It is critical that we understand this because according to Islam, the Quran is not only credible, it is God's only uncorrupted revelation. However, reality is that the Quran is full of historical errors. The Kaaba, which remains, it's this big black building, you see it in lots of pictures of when you look up things on, on Islam, it remains the most significant mosque in Islam. And it's said though, to have been constructed by Abraham and Ishmael. And there's absolutely no historical proof whatsoever in any secular sources that confirm that they did that. And there are numerous other narratives that cannot be verified outside of the Quran that are recounted in it, such as Abraham having an encounter with Nimrod, we don't have any other resources that talk about that. We, uh, they believe very strongly that Ishmael was the one sacrificed, not Isaac. And there are many other aspects of Abraham's life that disagree with the Bible. Most important, though, are some of the things they say about Jesus. We'll talk about him in a minute, but first I want to talk about Abraham a little bit more. Now, there are many inaccuracies in the Quran's view of Abraham's life, including that Ishmael, not Isaac, was the one offered as a sacrifice. Now, keep in mind, the Quran was written almost 2,000 years after the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses were written. And the accounts of Abraham 
were taken as historical by the Jews and Christians for almost 2,000 years before Muhammad came along and said, well, that's not right. And we have no basis historically in any sources whatsoever that confirm him changing what had been written and accepted for almost 2,000 years. In the Quran, it puts it this way. Um, then, when the son Ishmael reached the age of serious work with him, he said, Oh, my son, I see in a vision that, uh, that um, actually, Abraham says to him, O oh my son, I see in vision that I offer thee in sacrifice. Now see what is thy view. The son said, O oh my father, do as thou art commanded. Thou wilt find me, if Allah so wills, one practicing patience and constancy. So when they had both submitted their wills to Allah, he laid him prostrate on his forehead for sacrifice. Now that's not the only incorrect view in the in the Quran. Now Islam, see, they believe in Jesus, but they see him as one in the list of many prophets. At the same time, they also deny that Jesus is God and part of the Trinity. In fact, to believe in the Trinity, that God would be three in one, is the unpardonable sin in Islam. It is called the sin of shirk. In Surah 47171, uh, it says, O followers of the book, do not exceed the limits in your religion, and do not speak lies against Allah, but speak the truth. The Messiah, Isa, son of Maryam, in other words, Jesus, is only an apostle of Allah, and his word, which he communicated to Maryam and a spirit from him. Believe, therefore, in Allah and his apostles, and say not three. Desist. It is better for you. Allah is only one God, and far be it from his glory that he should have a son. The belief in the Trinity, of course, is foundational to the belief of the Christian religion and taught throughout the entire Christian Bible. I'm going to be, I, I have some really good lessons on um, on the Trinity, and I will be getting that up on the Bible, Bible 805 podcast and website. Now, as I said, Muslims believe and they list Jesus as a prophet, but they deny the reality of his crucifixion. In Surah 4157, it is very explicit and emphatic where it says, they killed him not nor crucified him, but so it was made to appear to them, for of a surety they killed him not. Now, in reality, the fatal suffering of Jesus Christ, as recounted in the New Testament, is one of the most well-documented facts of ancient history. Even in today's modern age of scientific enlightenment, there is a virtual consensus among New Testament scholars, both conservative and liberal, that Jesus died on a Roman cross. That's from an article on the equip.org website. Now, you can disagree to exactly what happened, or as some said, that it was because of sorcery or whatever, but the fact that Jesus was crucified is a historical reality. So, in summary, on the Islamic scriptures, the Quran, and the historical anchors for them, part of it's relatively good in that it was written fairly close to the events in the life of Muhammad that it describes, though not all agree on the final version of it. However, the Quran contains much in direct contradiction of Jewish history, biblical history, and secular world history regarding Abraham and Jesus and in many other areas. And the Quran's statements are not verified outside of the Quran. Therefore, 
the Quran cannot be God's only uncorrupted revelation if these discrepancies are valid. And you don't have to be a believer in any religion to verify that what the Quran teaches on some topics is not factually accurate. But it's really interesting. We're going to leave that for now. The Quran is not the only scripture that claims to be totally correct that is easily proved to contain false teaching. And that other scripture is the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon Church, claimed, The Book of Mormon is the most correct of any book on this earth and the keystone of our religion. And a man would get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than any other book. It's interesting that both religions claim that. And, I'm spoiler alert here, really both of them without any historical backing to support that. But we'll get to that more in a minute. We've already shown that the Quran is not infallibly correct in its historical errors. And we'll look at the historical verification for the Book of Mormon and the other Mormon scriptures after a brief review of the religion overall. Now let's look at an overview of the Mormon Church. It was founded by Joseph Smith. It began with visions purportedly from an angel, from an angel Moroni in 1820 who gave him a set of golden plates to translate into what became the Book of Mormon. Along with the King James Bible and other documents, which I'll identify shortly, these, this is what became their scriptures. Now, Joseph Smith also believed that all current religions were corrupt, and he was sent to restore the church. In addition to the written documents, Joseph Smith believed that his word as the founding prophet had divine authority, and he decided the beliefs of his new religion. Now, what is the Mormon view of salvation? This is really complicated, um, probably more than any other religion. And though they use many of the same terms, they have totally different meanings. A key example of this, now this is out of order a little bit, but it's important, is the Mormon view of Jesus. This is how Jesus is described in Mormon literature. Jesus is a separate God from the Father, Elohim. He was created as a spiritual child by the father and mother in heaven and is the elder brother of all men and spirit beings, including Lucifer. His body was created through sexual union between Elohim and Mary. Jesus was married. His death on the cross does not provide full atonement for all sin, but does provide everyone with resurrection. Now, <laughs> As biblical Christians, we don't believe any of that. We say that describes a totally separate Jesus, a different Jesus. Now, because Jesus, the Jesus of the Mormon church, is not the historical Jesus talked about in the Christian Bible, he cannot provide full atonement for sins. And in fact, their literature says that. His death on the cross does not provide full atonement for all sin. So what does? Now, a clarification here is important. The goal talked about in the Mormon church is not so much salvation as we talk about in the Christian church, but exaltation. That means at the end of your life, 
attaining to the highest of three celestial kingdoms after death. Just, again, look that up on Wikipedia and you'll see, um, well, on the web in general, and you'll see illustration after illustration after illustration of the different kingdoms and how the celestial kingdom is the highest kingdom. That's what the Mormon wants to achieve. And this is achieved by membership in and obedience to the teachings of the Mormon Church, which include all of these things, if you want to get to the highest kingdom. Baptism in the Mormon Church only. Laying on of hands, a bestowing of priesthood to men only, receiving temple endowments through ceremonies in the church, celestial marriage for time and eternity, again, only in the church, so that the couple can progress to Godhead and have spiritual children to populate their own world, in addition, one must tithe and practice what's called the word of wisdom, which means to abstain from alcohol, coffee, and tea, and one must attend their sacrament meetings. One must also practice obedience to the Mormon Church, obedience as defined by Bruce McConkie, who was a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He puts obedience in this way. He says, obedience to the church, its teachings, and the prophet is essential for the Mormon to gain exaltation in the celestial kingdom. Obedience is the first law of heaven, the cornerstone upon which all righteousness and progression rest. Remember that perdition or hell is reserved for apostates, those who leave the Mormon church and resign their membership in it. There is no salvation apart from total obedience of all the laws and ordinances of the church. In summary, Salvation in the Mormon Church as defined by the Mormon Church as defined by the Mormon Church itself is a very complex set of rules and requirements and it's very, very different than the Christian definition of salvation being by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. The four Mormon scriptures that support their beliefs and I'm going to define these and then I'll comment on them in the following uh, following things I'll talk about. First of all, they have something called Doctrine and Covenants. This is a collection of revelations and inspired declarations composed of 138 revelations from God. It's a large collection of doctrinal pronouncements by their early leaders. Then there's a Pearl of Great Price. This is composed of two lost books of the Bible. They believe lost books of the Bible, the book of Moses and the book of Abraham, a translation of the Gospel of Matthew, a Joseph Smith history, and the Mormon 13 articles of faith. And I'm going to talk about the book of Abraham a little bit more in a minute. The King James Bible, but they have this disclaimer with it. Joseph Smith said that it was only useful insofar as it was correctly translated. He believed that the Catholic Church had corrupted it and changed so many passages that it couldn't really be trusted anymore. And then the Book of Mormon. This is what he calls another testament of Jesus Christ, which is an English translation, theoretically, from the Golden Plates that was first published. It was The Book of Mormon was first published in 1830. It reflects Mormon beliefs that Jesus about Jesus and contains a record of God's work and Christ's appearance among the natives of North America. I'll talk about that more in a minute, but just going through the different ones. First of all, on the King James Bible, um, 
to me, this is really a Joseph Smith versus reality. He says that he believed in the Bible and they could, the Mormons can use the Bible insofar as it is correctly translated. He believed, as I said earlier, that the Catholic Church had corrupted it and changed so many passages that it couldn't be trusted. Please go back to the second lesson in this series on how historians determine truth in which the field of archaeology and biblical studies clearly show based on the results of study on the Dead Sea Scrolls and the thousands of other original language manuscripts that we have and comparing them to medieval manuscripts that the Bible we have today is essentially the same as when it was first written. Historically, and this is by secular scholars, you again, you may not believe the Bible, you may not say it came from God, but it has not been corrupted in its translation. And if the Bible in its entirety is correct, it directly contradicts much, much, much of Mormon teaching. Now, a few um, excerpts from the Book of Mormon. And now I, Mormon, being about to deliver up the record which I have been making into the hands of my son Moroni, behold, I have witnessed almost all the destruction of my people, the Nephites. And it came to pass also that the armies of the Lamanites in all the land of Zarahemla, along with all the people who belonged to King Benjamin, so that King Benjamin had continual peace all the remainder of his days. And it came to pass that he had three sons, and he called their names Mosiah, Helorim, and Helaman. In summary, the book, those are just two passages. It's a lot of similar uh, discussion of these histories. In summary, the Book of Mormon is the history of an ancient people who Joseph Smith said lived in the Americas from about 2200 BC to AD 421. And he includes a visit of Jesus Christ to them after his resurrection. The Mormon Church teaches that Joseph Smith's translated the golden plates given to him by an angel from ancient Egyptian. Why they were written in that, he doesn't really say. But this history, he translated it into the Book of Mormon. But as to exactly how he did it, there are a lot of different accounts. Now, let's evaluate the Book of Mormon historically. The Book of Mormon sounds like the King James Bible when you read it. And he did take story bits and pieces of Old Testament history that he just copied and put into it. However, not one thing, not one thing that is unique to the Book of Mormon, including where it took place or the people in it, has been historically, archaeologically, or in any way verified by objective sources. You'll find some Mormon websites that say, well, we, th- we think this was here, and, and we really believe by reading the Book of Mormon that it was there, but absolutely nothing, 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 even approximately close to what he talked about in any resources. It is by all credible scholars deemed fanciful, made-up legend. It, is not, it cannot be verified in any other way. In contrast, as I have said many times, our Bible has maps, verified geography, plus past and present histories of people talked about in many secular sources. The Book of Mormon is not the most correct book on earth by any historical verifiable data. 
But wait, you might say, what if you found an ancient manuscript that did verify the teaching of the Mormon Church, that actually talked about, as they believe, the pre-existence of souls and the planet Kolob that theoretically souls on Earth came from, and that is what the Mormon Church thought they had in a piece of ancient papyri that Joseph Smith purchased from a traveling mummy exhibit. He translated it also as he had done the golden plates, and it became part of the Pearl of Great Price, one of their foundational documents that teaches the idea that God organized the eternal elements to create the universe. He didn't believe that God created it ex nihilo, out of nothing. The exaltation of humanity, a pre-mortal existence, the first and second estates, and the plurality of God. So this is a really important piece of their scriptures. Now, unfortunately, like earlier copies of the Book of Mormon, they thought it was lost in the Great Chicago Fire. But... It was rediscovered in 1966, and you can see pictures of it online today. Great excitement followed. However, that excitement quickly faded when non-Mormon Egyptologists translated it and found it was simply an ancient funeral text talking about Osiris and various Egyptian gods and nothing at all about Abraham. And you can go to Wikipedia and many other sources. You can see a copy of the papyri that he had and how current um, modern Egyptologists translate it. What he said was the angel of the Lord is actually in Egyptian the soul of Osiris. Um, uh, he talks about these different gods and they were canopic jars of just actually the organs of the person that uh, was being mummified in this particular image. Uh, all of these different things that he talked about, they absolutely nothing to do with what it really said. So a summary of the his, historicity of the Mormon documents. Doctrine and Covenants, it was written by early leaders. It's accurate in that it transmits what they taught, though much of this has been modified and changed over the years. The Pearl of Great P Price, uh, the part of it particularly on the Book of Abraham, uh, it, it is in reality papyri that was not even remotely what it claimed to be. The Book of Mormon, no historical or geological evidence whatsoever for any of the content in it. And their view of the Bible, that it was corrupted because it was translated so many times, that's simply false as a historical issue. Because key evidence, older fragments, particularly the Dead Sea Scrolls, shows that the ancient manuscripts are almost identical with our Bibles today. And in it, but in addition to their sacred books, and now this is really important, the LDS Church subscribes to the doctrine of continual revelation. This is how they say, well, but if. <laughs> um, and this is one of their quotes. We believe that God has revealed all that he does now reveal. And we believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Mormons believe that such apostolic revelation is inspired, but not infallible. And because of that, somebody could say something and it's inspired for right now, but if someone comes along and says something else, that now that's inspired, and so it can supersede previous revelation. 
The only one authorized to bring forth such new doctrine is the president of the church. When he does that, he will declare it as a revelation from God. It will be accepted by the church's first presidency and the quorum of the twelve apostles, and then sustained by the body of the church. This has been used to explain many changes in doctrine over the years, including their teachings on polygamy, which were once required, now it's not, their previous racist views, which they have changed, and many other things. Again, there is no historical verification um, of this process, and actually none is claimed. They, they are honest on that. If you follow the requirement of obedience in the Mormon Church, you simply must accept this. Now, we're at the point of where I'm going to summarize the scripture overview comparing the Christian Bible with other scriptures. This has been incredibly brief. Please check out the different things I've talked about online and read the downloads of the various religious books. There's no need to fear it. I shared earlier that I was a faith coward. I thought, well, what if, what if they have all this stuff that's like the Bible? They don't and an objective reading of them, a view of them, a checking out of things will show you that what I've talked about is correct. Hinduism, Buddhism, Mormonism, and the Islamic scriptures are all appealing in their own way. They're, it's understandable why people would follow them. And again, I am not being mean or I don't, I hope I'm not denigrating any of it, but in reality, they're filled with tradition, myth, speculation, and sadly, in the case of the book of Abraham, outright falseness. Many base their authority based on the words primarily of their leaders as recorded through tradition and legend. Few, if any, historical anchors as far as locations, dates, words as of, are given as a foundation for their beliefs. And even more, much of the content of many of them is in total contradiction to facts. Islam and Mormonism claim to be totally without error, but claims to factual history in their scriptures are not verified outside their respective faiths. And this is in some of the most basic, basic things, not esoteric historical stuff that Jesus didn't die. No, he did. And all kinds of historical resources say that. Um, and the book of Abraham, uh, they said it, it says this one thing, and Egyptologists just translated the words right there and said, no, it doesn't. So this isn't, um, again, esoteric or hidden or highly advanced. It's just reality. Hinduism and Buddhism, on the other hand, make no claims to be historical and evidential and state that their followers can believe whatever they want to believe. Christianity, in contrast, the Christian Bible is anchored to real history actions verified outside the Bible, real geography, real people, and archaeological support of its beliefs. These anchors are in more than one or two areas. The Christian Bible is permeated with historical anchors. Again, see the second lesson in this series for reviews of it and in other lessons that I'm going to be doing later on the specific books of the Bible, I will give you specific archaeological, geographic, historical anchors that go with each of the books. This historical foundation of truth is what the Bible builds on until it comes to Jesus.
and in his life and development of the Christian church continues on a historical, verifiable basis. But there's one more thing. In Christianity, not only do we have historically verifiable words about our Savior, but the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Christianity claims that the eternal God became flesh and blood in a real place, in a real time, and that the information written about Him was true. No other religion has the historical anchors of Christianity. Those historical anchors do not of themselves compel belief, but they should provide a foundation for serious consideration. The God-made man, Jesus, came to earth and walked among us. He died, rose again, and one day those who have trusted him as Savior will see him face to face. Now some final application thoughts of the lessons where I have been comparing the Bible with other scriptures. Toleration is of course expected, but toleration does not mean saying all religious scriptures have the same validity if the claims of that religion are not backed up by objective historical evidence. Beware even when you read these things, because there's lots of positive things in, in all of the different ones of false religions in life and culture. In other words, there are many of the teachings, current teachings on Zen, mindfulness, um, you know, meditation, sort of this vague spirituality without content. This is what others have called functional Buddhism. All of these things may have some useful ideas, but vague spirituality doesn't answer ultimate questions and reality and should be approached with care, I think. You can, though, trust your Bible. It's historical anchors, historical verification that is solid. Study it. Read it. Get to know it and trust it so that you can obey the command to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. That's all for now. If this podcast has been useful to you, please support it through your donations and prayers. For how to do that, plus notes from this lesson, related resources, and helpful links, go to www.bible805.com. In closing, I'm Yvonne Prince your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to end with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.